Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Pastor Grego Pillay. Grego is an Associate Pastor at Avondale Memorial Seventh-day Adventist Church in Kurumbong, New South Wales. Grego is a talented musician with a beautiful tenor voice. Before studying ministry, Grego worked as an electrical fitter in the family business. Grego was born in South Africa to devout Hindu parents. Today, Grego is going to tell us about his journey to ordained ministry in the Seventh Adventist Church and his life and ministry today. Welcome, Grego. Thank you, Dr. Barry. Grego, tell me about the turning point in your life that took place when you were 15 years of age. Well, um, yes, uh, the idea of me asking the tough questions and being challenged with life, basically, was the turning point. I wanted to find meaning. I was wrestling with the idea because coming from a Hindu family, and of course, we were already a church at that time, but the conversion experience didn't begin with me, it began with my dad. And so within that culture, because dad got converted, naturally we were younger and we follow suit. It's the chief being converted, so the family goes. So that's where I was. And so I was wanting to learn more, find out the deeper truths out there. Could it be possible that my dad was wrong in his search within the Hindu philosophy? And so this is where I was, because at the end of the day, Barry, I was wanting to own my spirituality. So your father, your parents have converted to Seventh-day Adventism from Hinduism. Well, not really from Seventh-day Adventism. They they searched, so they went into different communions of faith as well. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it was led up to the Seventh-day Adventist church. So at 15 years of age, you've been in the church for a few years, but you have a bit of a crisis of confidence or faith, and you are searching for the answers at this point. Yes. And this was the big turning point in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going to come back to that later and talk about that in more detail. But what was it like growing up in a devout Hindu home? Wow, it was very... Uh, actually, it was a beautiful experience in terms of understanding the religion, uh, going to temple as a young boy, taking part in the... Uh, Uh, temple services. I remember a time growing up with my grandfather going to the temple and he said to me, well, go into the garden and we had, uh, I was living on the farm at that time and on holidays we always look forward to going to to spend time with grandma and grandpa. And so uh, he told me to just go and get some oranges and, and some fruit, you know, guavas. And I said, why do we why why do we need to go there and get some fruit? He says, no, these are special things that we need to take to the temple and it's part of our culture, part of our religion, that we take some fruits to offer to our gods, to our idols. And I said, that's interesting. Uh, at a young age, I may not have used those words. That it's interesting. I look forward to taking some fruits and some milk and coconut and going there. And so the experience was very, uh, as I reflect now, um, sensory in terms that you see the idols there, you smell the incense. It's a very emotional kind of experience. And, um, and that's basically the description that I 
can put together. So apart from going to the temple and engaging in the services, what sorts of expectations were there, were there in the home around your behaviour? Yes, uh, well, in the strict Hindu home, respect for authority is very important. We have what is called in uh, our culture, in the Indian culture, there's this statement, uh, Mada Pida Gurudevam which simply means your mother and your father are your first gods, small letter G. Basically, why is that through your parents' teachings, they introduce the idea of God to you at a young age. So the respect for parents is so indelibly inscribed into our minds. Um, And so respect for authority, care for uh, your body, because... It is the belief that uh, God dwells in you. That's where where it was. So your parents were almost in the position of God to you at this time. At that time, yes. What sorts of things would you have to do in the family to show that respect? Well, in a traditional home, you uh, uh, basically, when you get up, you see them, you touch their feet. Uh, That's a a respect uh, kind of thing. what else do we do is that you basically uh, listen. <laughs> Sounds simple, but uh, you will dare not try to talk back to your father. And uh, I have done that many times, and it was never a comfortable experience, <laughs> let me tell you that. <laughs> but uh, I look back now that I have my children, and it's kind of challenging in the 21st century being in a Western culture, to uh, share those values because, and I try my best not to be too authoritarian because uh, children are at a different level at this time in their lives, but to inculcate in them that deep desire of respect for parents, respect for authority, with the hope that they will respect God, the great Mm. authority in their lives. Mm. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about Hinduism in general. You know, what's its origins, its values, its practices, mm. and even its attraction. Now, you talked about the sensory yes. part before. What's, so, what's attractive about Hinduism? Basically, Barry, Hinduism is not necessarily the technical term for the religion. Hinduism is just basically regarded as those that lived in the Indus Valley of India and were regarded as Hindus. But the original religious term is called Sanata Dharma, which means the eternal religion, the religion that never goes out. And it's also a way of life. It's a philosophy of life. And so in the sacred scriptures, and there's many sacred scriptures like the Gita, the Puranas, the the, Ved- the Vedas and so forth, the Upanishads, they teach an important lesson through stories and narratives. But basically, the philosophy of Hinduism is simply that uh, based on the law of karma, which is an indelibly rich uh, idea within Hinduism, uh, that because of the Hindu pantheon, uh, that is... Hinduism has about three million deities 
gods. Um, and its philosophy is inscribed through the doctrine of uh, the law of karma, through the doctrine of reincarnation. And basically, a life is a cycle, as opposed to a different worldview like the Judeo-Christian worldview that I've embraced, is it is linear. Time starts at a spe specific point, and it is progressive, leading towards the future. In Hinduism, it's a cycle, uh, and it's cyclic. And so when you're born, you live your life, you die, and you reincarnate, or, and you become a different life form. Now, each birth is a rebirth, and you are progressing until you reach Mahatma, which is mean, it means the great soul, Mahatma. And so that's basically that philosophy. It's the doctrine of reincarnation, samsara, moving into uh, a different life form with the hope that because you've lived a good life in the previous life, you will reach the next rung of the ladder, so to speak, and you improve and you progress till you become God yourself. And uh, that's basically, Barry, the philosophy and the ethos of the uh, theology of the religion. So what is it like looking out on the world through the eyes of a Hindu or Hindu philosophy? Yes, f using that philosophical lens or a worldview there, I looked at life stating that, man, uh, you know, maybe with the crimes that I witnessed growing up in South Africa and all this... Um, you know, pain and misery and suffering. Maybe in the previous life something happened, and that is why they're copying it now. Hmm. You know what I mean? And hopefully that correcting one's life and trying to improve will give them hope in the next life to come. And that's how Hindus view the world. Um, and not only that, Barry, I forgot to say that Within Hinduism, there's this caste system that is rooted and prescribed within the scriptures. And the highest caste, as you may be aware, is the Brahman caste. Below that is the Kshatriyas, the Vaishnavas, and the Pariyas, or the untouchables. And within each caste is also sub-castes. And that gets a bit complicated. And the philosophy is, yeah, you're born into that caste. Don't do anything about it because all you do is just be good. Do the necessary prescribed prayers, the pujas and the sacrifices and hope that in the next life you will reach another caste till you become Brahman, the Mahatma the great soul kind of thing. And so here we find um, life through the Hindu eyes or glasses is viewed exactly like that. There is hope, but hope that can be a bit difficult to grasp. And that is where I was in my life, searching for ultimate reality, ultimate meaning, because it needs to be reconciled with what I was experiencing now. Let me tell you just before you ask me the next question, this is what Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was faced with. He was a Hindu, and he was a prince, 
And when he walked the streets of in his district, he saw the abject poverty and the pain and misery, and he said, hang on, this is not true. And so he repudiated the faith of his fathers. He questioned the authority of the Vedas, and he started Buddhism. Not many people know that. And uh, when I looked, acad uh, studied this academically to find meaning, I looked at this and I said, hang on, these are the great men that also saw what I was seeing uh, in my 15-year-old, 16-year-old mind. And I said, there must be ultimate truth out there. There must be absolute truth and meaning. And uh, the rest was history. Now, there was a period in your life between that time your parents became Seventh Adventists when you were nine years of age and when you have this sort of search for the truth at, at age 15, I want to explore what it was like in that six-year period and what it was like after that period, after the age of 15. So what sort of changes did adopting Seventh Adventism bring to your life compared with your life before you were nine? That's a very good question, Barry. Uh, I found meaning in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the claims that Jesus made, I wanted to examine that and see for myself whether his claims were authentic. Was the resurrection true? Um, is it possible for a body to be resurrected? Understand what it means when he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, which I believe that's my, one of my favorite texts in, in, the, in Scripture. You know, and um, having come to a fully understanding, uh, understanding of, uh, having come to a full and rich understanding of what he means and how he sees life when he came to live on earth, that for me is true humanity is the epitome of humanity, of what a human being is. And so for me, Jesus packaged the entire corpus of reality and meaning because it's only through him I found my identity. And it's through him that I have meaning in life. So that's the post-15 experience. What yes. Was it, what was it like in that period leading up to the age of 15? It was just definitely search, questioning, um, figuring out that we have one Bible, but why so many people have different interpretations. And he's a young man. And that, 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 that really uh, floored me to know that everyone's reading the same Bible in different translations, that's okay. But they're saying the Bible says the same thing. But we find in Christianity different brands, different teachings. And that's, that's exactly what my grandmother says, who was not a Christian. And she's late now, and she heard of us becoming Christians and heard my journey as well. And she said, but pa, that's a fond term of calling grandsons, you know, uh, you guys are confused, basically, you know. Uh, you have one book, but different interpretations. And I quickly said to her, you know, um, it's interesting, Grandma, <laughs> because we, all, we also have, as Hindus, one book or different books and different religions, different castes, different... And she looked at me, hey, you're right. 
But the point is that when I studied the Bible, I found meaning and truth. But prior to my discovery of that, I had this mindset of confusion um, because I, I, I came to believe that the Christian worldview was a real plausible explanation for everything. But because of its diversity in, within Christianity, I was a bit reluctant to put my all my faith into one denomination. And uh, I had to explore and find now what is the truth in that. And so in my, my worldview, I've got this written out. And um, it's, it's belief in God, yes, there is a God eventually. But why not the Hindu God? Why not the Buddhist? Why not Islam? Why not? That, that was my inquiry and pursuit. But it dawned on me that Christianity, the Judeo-Christian worldview, answers four basic realities. The question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The Christian worldview gave me that explanation. And so I settled it that Christianity is the religion, but which brand of Christianity, you see? And uh, that's where I was in that period. Maybe not expressed and articulate in that way within 9 to 16. Those are young years. But it was this kind of a question posed, religion. And, and it was a big part of my life to discover and to find it eventually. So what was the impact on your life of this search? What did you conclude? I concluded that the way... I understand the gospel as taught by my particular denomination, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is fully reliable according to what the Bible teaches. And uh, that has given me a deep sense of peace, not because of the particular denomination, uh, but the way the Bible interprets itself, that within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we can know that the Bible is authentic, and it's not just that we rely on people to interpret the Bible for us and to us, but when we study it for ourselves, we see the truth of what this denomination has already taught for many years, and that uh, to continue that pursuit and the discovery and above all, the Reformation. Now, what did this mean to your Christian life? Describe the difference that it made in your, in your own life. I mean, you, you're in a church for a period, you do your own searching, you come to your own conclusions, you, you find the peace and the path that you want. What practical difference did it make in your life? What was life like after? Life after my conversion where I found the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time was how God was using me and speaking through me and leading me to something purposeful. I worked in the family business as an electrical fitter and so forth, uh, finished my apprenticeship and worked there. And I found myself 
finding the greatest joy of sharing my faith to my colleagues at work and uh, my friends and the calling upon the life to do this kind of full-time was placed there eventually because I didn't want to become a minister. I didn't want to share faith and stuff like that. But because of my experience with it, it was so hot that I didn't want to lose that urgency and that passion. And so the, the most meaningful thing that I can really express is the fact of sharing Jesus with others and what he has done for me, uh, giving me hope, changing my life around, uh, not only intellectually, but practically in relationships, um, providing for my needs, you know. And sometimes we often think that uh, intellectually everything is sound, but the practicality of having Jesus in your life is not really experienced. Oftentimes, some, many people have expressed that to me, that, yes, it, the doctrines, everything sounds well, you know, the, the arguments are all carefully articulated and well-organized. The teaching is so sound, but the heart connection, the, the, the practicality of the Christian experience is not lived. And I tell people, you know, Barry, the greatest journey that anyone will make in life is the journey from the head to the heart mm. to connect that. And I think that is what uh, I enjoy now, post, and continue to enjoy. Not that I've arrived at my destination, but it is a continual growing experience with Jesus and discovering what his will is for our lives. Would you have been quite happy just to continue as an electrical fitter? I don't think so. Uh, I, I would have been quite happy. I was happy doing that. But in terms of the Lord calling me to do something greater, not to say that the electrical fitter job or any uh, secular job is inferior to the gospel ministry, but to have this understanding that God wants you to do this full time is far different from being an electrical fitter and still being a witness. I don't want to downplay that because I was doing well in terms of witnessing to my friends while being an electrical fitter. But the specialness of being called for this full time, being in the ordained ministry, that's a great joy to know that you've been called for this. Did you have any other ambitions at that time? My ambition was to be a great musician, uh, a singer, and um, the Lord, I think, diverted that to something else. Well, I had also the ambition to be um, uh, an architect, because that's what I've studied at school, technical drawing and so forth, but for some reason that never fall through. <laughs> now, you're a very talented musician, and we're going to come back to that a little later, but... You also had a friend, a pastor, Paul Charles, who encouraged you. Tell me about Pastor Charles. Pastor Paul Charles is a great friend, a very passionate Christian. Actually, his testimony is remarkable, and, 
and uh, he grew up in uh, in in various organizations that took care of delinquent children and his parents were alcoholics and he won't be embarrassed if I express that he's quite comfortable um, but basically his search was so contagious that it sparked an interest in my life so much so that at the age of 15 he was conducting Bible studies and uh, teaching people about the Sabbath and uh, the state of the dead and so forth. He just had an incredible, incredible mind and uh, uh, re he loved reading. And so one time he came to my school uh, and he was doing a debate. I didn't realize he was a speaker and he, he should give speeches and participate in, uh, in debating contests and so forth. And I saw him at my school from another school, and they had this district school uh, debating competition on some topic. And he saw me, and I saw him, and I said, hey, what are you doing here? And I said, this is what he's doing. And then the first time it dawned on me that uh, this guy is, is a great orator and speaker and communicator. And so as we progressed in our journey, uh, he took me under his wings, and I'm just only three years younger than him, so not much difference. Uh, but I could see in him a person who really had a relationship with Jesus, hmm. and he was so passionate about that. And uh, he taught me a few things, how to understand the Bible and so forth, and uh, he really challenged me to, to think about the ministry as I was growing in my faith with Jesus. Now, you met your wife, Melanie, a year before you commenced ministerial studies in 1999. Yes. And you were married when you graduated in 2003. Tell me about your ministerial studies, commencing full-time ministry, and starting a family. I studied at Haldeberg College in South Africa in Cape Town, but I was hoping to study at Spicer Memorial College in India. That's where pa uh, Paul Charles was, my friend. He was completing his uh, degree, and uh, he heard that I'm interested in preparing for the ministry, and so he spoke to uh, the, the professors and the people in charge of ad admissions and so forth, and I was accepted to go there. And, uh, but for some reason, I wasn't allowed or given a visa to India to study. And so I don't want to prolong the agony. I was so eager to go and be prepare, go to prepare for ministry. And so I so found myself at Alderberg College, and those four years were remarkable. A great journey, great journey of being <laughs> uh, confused because uh, uh, you know, being challenged, having your mind opened, and uh, asking the tough questions. And uh, for the first time, I saw theology in terms of, besides the relational part, but the academic, the rigorous uh, undertakings of now that I've looked at my journey, finding my meaning in the search that I've done privately in my own way of going to the libraries at that age of 15, 16. Now to sit uh, formally in front of a professor and he takes me through that, which just galvanized and made my faith more robust. 
Yes. And so four years I spent there, the Lord has been, had been greatly, uh, uh, the Lord blessed tremendously. And uh, I wasn't a bright student, Barry. Actually, I didn't meet the criteria to go and study for, for theology. In those days, you've got to have a set aggregate after metric exams or the equivalent of HSC. And uh, I didn't make the grade. I received a letter saying uh, you are unsuccessful. And I was discouraged. I reapplied, turned down again, until the head of department, Dr. John Webster, who is now professor at La Sierra University. He gave me a call and he says, you know what, I, you're aware that you don't meet the requirement, but I'm gonna give you a chance. I'm gonna try you out for the first semester and then we'll take it from there, from there on. So please make your way the next semester and come down. So I took the bus from Durban to Cape Town, that 17 hours drive. And I started and I said, Lord, I believe you've called me and you will help me to understand this because those days, you know, people talk about Greek or it's so hard, the, the systematic theology and Hebrew, and that put me at a very uh, sensitive or difficult or what's the word, uh, a place where, oh, can I really make it kind of thing. But the Lord did a remarkable thing, you know. Uh, I graduated uh, the first semester. I had a GPA of 3.6, which is higher distinction. And then professor said, you can sit, finished it off. And we praised the Lord, I graduated well with the, with the cum laude. Uh, that's remarkable for me. I'm not saying it to blow my trumpet, but to, if you understood my academics growing up at school, <laughs> you wouldn't think that this guy is capable of uh, doing some heavy stuff or theology. But you'd already done some of that heavy stuff yourself, hadn't you? Personally, I mean, yes. Personally. Maybe, you know, the teachers didn't recognize it at that time because I was quite difficult in terms of uh, studying. Uh, I think they needed to understand who I am <laughs> before they could have taught me. And you're about to undertake a PhD program. Yes, I've completed my master's through Avondale College and I'm thinking of uh, pursuing a, a doctoral work, yeah. Well, that's uh, a long way from being rejected. Yes. Initially, isn't it? Yes. So clearly the Lord's blessed Praise the Lord, And yes. the Lord also blessed you with a lovely family. Tell me about that. Yes, and my wonderful wife. Before I went to study for the ministry, um, Melanie, she was at church, uh, Adventist girl, beautiful spiritual lady. Um, and then I was attracted to her because she was displaying so much of good qualities. And I thought, man, wouldn't be okay if I just go and ask her out and see what happens. <laughs> it's not so easy to ask girls out before studying medicine. And I assume that these girls who study medicine have a high uh, level of search for their boyfriends or life partner. You know, maybe they need to be at that level academically, knowing myself. <laughs> just almost uh, scraped high school to get through. And now <laughs> I've just got a permission through a telephone call to come and study, you know. But I was brave enough to go and ask her out. <laughs> and she conceded and she, well, not immediately. She said she'll think about it. And then eventually as time go, went by and we got to know each other and uh, we 
we asked each other, I asked out to, so eventually within that year I was going to study. And so we had a long distance relationship for many years. She graduated by then, uh, went to work in London as a medical doctor. And um, when I graduated the last year, in that same year, I got married. And the following year, I started uh, ministry, and we had our children. My firstborn, JJ, was born in 2004, so, and Abigail, 2005. So you just have the two children? Two children, boy and a girl, Jehiel mm-hmm. and Abigail. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Pastor Gregor Pillay. Gregor has been telling me about his journey from Hinduism to Christian ministry in South Africa. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Gregor about his move to Australia, his life, his ministry and study here, and the role that singing plays in his life. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia all one word dot o-r-g dot a-u Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Pastor Gregor Pillay. Gregor has been telling me about his journey from Hinduism to Christian ministry in South Africa. In the remainder of the program, I'll be talking with Grego about his move to Australia, his life, ministry and study here, and the role that singing plays in his life. Grego, why Australia? Why Australia? We were thinking about Canada as well. But since my wife was wanting to also have a rich experience in a developed country in terms of medicine, we found out that Australia seven years ago was also desperate to find doctors. And so she applied, uh, and through the interview process, she was picked up. And that is why we are here in Australia. Was it a good choice to come? Yes, it was a good choice. Now, as I reflect back. (laughs) Now, what was it like transitioning to Australia and also to ministry in Australia? Transitioning to Australia, as in any uh, country you go and relocate, it is a challenge uh, because you are rooted in your country of your birth. For me, it was South Africa. And uh, the challenges were not so much in terms of assimilating myself within the Australian context, but to leave family behind because that was the hardest part, you know. Uh, Being an Indian as well, to let go was also painful. 
But the Lord has been so good that uh, despite the fact that we don't have any families in Australia, you know, the friends that we built over the many years, the short span of time that we were here, became family. Hmm. I think that's the Australian experience. Your friends become your family. Now tell me about your ministry at the Newcastle Multicultural Church. It was such a rich experience in terms of its diversity with the multicultural people. The church was made up of a lot of Pacific Islanders and um, a rich experience to know that, uh, to engage with these fantastic people and to also add my value to to that rich, diverse fabric. Um, I love the music there with, with, with the multicultural people as they love music, the Pacific Islanders, the food, of course, beautiful, and the relationship, the hospitality, thoroughly enjoyed that. And the earnestness and the sincerity in them wanting to know biblical truth and growing deeper and understanding what Jesus is all about and the Bible is all about. You also spent some time at the Charlestown Church in Newcastle. Charlestown was quite different in terms of its makeup. Uh, it's purely Australian uh, culture, Caucasian white culture. And yeah, I'm, I'm the Indian pastor. <laughs> you know, I had to transition as well. And I think, Barry, you know, with ministry, if a minister cannot adapt, it, it is very difficult to be in different contexts of ministry. And I think I've learned to adapt, but not compromise. And that's the difference. Mm. Uh, I've said to the Lord, uh, you know, while I need to adapt in ministry so that you be all things to all men, as Paul says, to reach all people, or reach some people, uh, that you adapt to understand where people coming, are coming from and so that you reach them at their level to take them where God wants them to be. And so that was a beautiful experience as well at Charlestown Church um, and transitioning there, and the Lord has blessed tremendously. And now you're working in a pastoral team. What's yes. that like? And that's even a rich experience to uh, be part of a pastoral team for a big church such as Avondale Memorial uh, with such a diverse group uh, in terms of age barrier. Uh, we have the retirees that served the church that were th past theologians of the church as well. Uh, and to minister at that level is a rich experience. It's a learning experience for me myself. And um, I take it one day at a time, you know, and I thank God for that rich diversity. And it's good to be part of a ministerial team so you can bounce ideas off. And uh, the decision-making uh, decision process is not dependent on one person. It's a community expression of the pastors. Now, you did a master's degree in leadership and management at Avondale College. Mm -hmm. What was your motivation for doing that? I was always intrigued with leadership. And I read the great biographies of Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, when you look at these leaders, the question that I had was in my mind was, what made these leaders so great? Uh, was it, are you born a leader? Or 
Is leadership acquired? What What is this? Ends my search and my journey to pursue masters in leadership. So you're still intellectually curious. I'm still in- intellectually curious. I have my theories as well uh, <laughs> on what makes a leader. And I think at the end of the day, God makes in spiritual leadership, God prepares you, your heart, to lead. Now tell me about this PhD program that you're about to undertake. Uh, the PhD that I'm working on is in the area of uh, systematic theology and uh, the understanding of the atonement and the sacrifice. You know, Ellen White makes a statement, a great writer whom I admire, uh, uh, not only a devotional writer, in my estimation she is a theologian. Um, She makes makes the statement that this great sacrifice of Christ as our atonement is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. And if that is the case, then I am passionate about pursuing it at that level of study, of also not only looking at the atonement within Christianity, more so within Adventist theology, but compare it with my former religion in Hinduism, particularly the sacrifices, and to contrast and compare and pull the parallels together for only finding ways in reaching the intellectual Hindus out there to see that Christianity as a plausible explanation of this great concept that is mentioned in the sacred scriptures called the prajapati. The prajapati, that's a Sanskrit term for the great sacrifice, which simply means, Barry, that there will come a time of the great sacrifice that will put an end to the current sacrifices that are being practiced within Hinduism. So, Barry, I want to demonstrate through that study that that great sacrifice, the prajapati, is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's a pretty, um, that's a pretty important project you're undertaking. Yeah. I mean, that's just got massive implications, hasn't it? It has. It has. It's just still in its proposal days. Speaking, I've spoken to some of the guys at uh, professors at Avondale College, and they're quite interested. That'll be one PhD thesis I'd like to read. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you're also a musician and a singer. In fact, um, listening to you, I think you could probably make your income on the stage, on a concert (laughs) stage. What role does music play in your life today? A very significant role, Barry. Um, I... I, This uh, part is a bit... To understand that I was never, or wasn't always a musician, you know, I had the talent there. It was my desire to study music academically, you know, to get a bachelor of music. But growing up at school, I was wanting to do music, grade one. But because the schooling system was such that people who perform academically were allowed to do music, and people who didn't perform academically do another subject. I did health education. (laughs) And so I wasn't, you know, because of my results, allowed to do that subject. And that affected me. But eventually, I had to teach myself. That's basically how I was taught until 
in college years, I took some voice lessons. I started, uh, I did some voice coaching and voice training, yeah. And I thank God, only God, that sustained that talent and honed it, you know, and cultivated it. And that is why I'm... So you start out at age 15 being a philosopher and being curious about, curious about things, but um, your latent academic talent wasn't recognised until you actually were given the opportunity. Yes. You have this magnificent singing voice and musical talent, and you don't get to actually study that, but that latency has been brought out now. There's a bit of a pattern there, isn't there? Yes. I see the pattern only as described as God the Grand Weaver that's pulling the threads of one's life together. And in retrospect, that is the great miracle of what God can do to me, fully surrendering to him. So when you give yourself to God, he brings out all the latent abilities that you have. Amen, yes. And he denied you sort of academic, good academic performance and also musical performance until you're an adult. You know, Barry, that's interesting. I think back and I say, Lord, if I had been given the chance to sing and study, Maybe I'll be out in the world making a lot of money, but maybe I, I don't know what life would have become, you know. Yes, the glitz and the glamour is out there. And I sense God just paving the way hmm. for a moment in one's life where he deserves the glory. He gets all the glory. And so when I sing now, I sing not for accolades, not for affirmation and praise, but to bring honor to his name, honor and glory to his name, the name of Jesus Christ. So for your sake, God actually releases your latent abilities after you've made your commitment to him. I think so. And that's when it's safest. It's the best. It's and, the best. And it also brings out the best in you, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And that's the uh, amazing testimony, not of my ability but God's ability in me, that God believes in me, and that's what I thrive on. Um, I don't consider myself as a great musician. Many people say that, and my wife really affirms that. Um, and, you know, when I look at children, my children, I, you know, encourage them to to study and to learn their violin, guitar, and, and Abby is a good, I think she's got a good voice and she will develop into a great soprano one day. But the idea of encouraging my children, knowing that I also, you know, you have that wish, I wish my parents were encouraging me in that direction. Not to say my parents didn't recognize, they recognized it, but in those days, you know, Growing in under apartheid, you need to get a good job. You need to focus. So in the Indian community, success is by you becoming a teacher, by becoming a doctor. If you do music, oh, that's not going to bring you money. How are you going to earn money? So that challenge or the encouragement from that angle was a bit not celebrated, you know. Uh, and I can, I can understand why, because of the situation. No successful Indian is a musician. <laughs> Back in South Africa, <laughs> Indians cannot sing. 
<laughs> especially in India, in English, you know, uh, English lyrics. Uh, it's a different, they are good singers, good musicians within their cultural uh, ethos and uh, Tamil or Hindi songs. They're great. Very rare to have an English Indian tenor. Mm. Yeah. And that's what I, I praise God for. Now, we can see these transitions that you're making from a young person to a mature Christian. Um, you're transitioning from what you would say is low academic results to high academic performance, transitioning to great musical skill. Tell me about the transition from, pre, from apartheid to post-apartheid in South Africa and your experience of it. My experience of uh, apartheid was not so pronounced, uh, Barry. Um, apartheid in those days, and they used this policy of the Group Areas Act, you know, the segregation of people into certain environments within South Africa. So the whites lived in this area, the blacks in a certain area, the Indians in a different area, and colored so forth uh, in another area. So we grew up in a bubble, if I can put it in quotes. And um, my, most of my schooling were with people that were Indians, you know, different uh, Indians who are Buddhists, Indians who are Muslims, Indians who are Christians, Indians who are atheists. You know, that, but we schooled with Indians, Indian teachers as well. So my parents' generation were really affected by it as they traveled to work and so forth and applying for jobs and, and so forth. Uh, but I only became conscious of it when I came out of, oh, towards my senior use, uh, years of high school. And where I had to take the taxi for myself and uh, travel everywhere in, in, in town, where I see the signs, the white beaches, black beaches, post offices, segregated and things like that. Then it dawned on me, hang on, there's something strange. But um, to be honest, uh, I have to be quite honest, I wasn't physically uh, abused by the apartheid system. And... Uh, Thank God for that, because knowing me, I can blow my trump off <laughs> because uh, I, I prefer justice and, uh, and it didn't sit well as I read through the history and so forth. And so within that transition from apartheid to post-apartheid, I think the country now is, is improving, but there's still things that needs to be um, done in terms of infrastructure, in terms of uh, also fairness across all boards, because um, what we find in South Africa is reverse apartheid, if you can understand what I'm saying, where because a certain person is in power now, the people that have caused so much of stress and ang angst must bear the brunt of it. And I think that's unfair. Um, that's not the values that Mandela had, the great leader who wanted fairness and equality. But human nature is such that we have forgiveness just on a manuscript, but it's not pro practiced. That's mm. the challenge of the human heart, I guess. 
Tell me what you've learned in your life. And your life is still a, a work in progress. <laughs> what I would say the greatest lesson I've learned in life uh, is to, from a Christian, from my spiritual perspective, is never to quench the thirst for truth. In other words, when someone has put his or her mind to search for truth sincerely, I believe you'll be led to the source of truth. And for me, that's Jesus Christ. That's the greatest lesson I've learned, is never forsake and to belittle that because you do not perform academically, that you cannot find meaning and find the truth and be an academic or in your own right or a philosopher. I believe everyone out there is gifted for success and for finding that truth. And I would say to people, don't allow anyone to thwart or to silence that pursuit. It's the greatest journey. I guess as a Christian, you can take your brief from God, so we're not sort of responsible to other people for our lives. We're responsible to God. So just like he did with you, God can bring out all the latent abilities of an individual and mm -hmm. take them to places they would never have thought that they would go. Often I have people on this program who have amazing experiences but would never have imagined in their early lives that they would have those experiences. Mm. But through Christianity, by making a commitment to Christ, their lives have changed dramatically and they've done things that they never thought that they would do. And I guess that leads to a, a sense of satisfaction as well. Deep satisfaction and inner peace that I don't need to prove to anyone who I am. Mm. You know, oftentimes when I minister and I speak to young people, this is the great challenge that is out there. Am, am I accepted is the question. What do I need to do to earn the right to be in the company of this clique or this group? And you see that even so with the, within academics, within the intel, intelligentsia of societies, that uh, in order to be in that group, you got to have some kind of academic uh, history to be within that gentleman's club, if I can use that loosely. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I think I don't need to prove to anyone, and I say to people, Pastor Pele is not into in a popularity contest. I believe that God has me where he is for such a time as this, and I can only just do what I can and be happy and content with what he has given me. And that doesn't mean I must not improve or search and acquire. That's the joy of doing that. But I don't beat myself to get it to be identified. I have my identified identity already in Jesus. Mm. Mm. Do you have a favorite Bible passage? Yes. One of it is in John chapter 14, verse 6. The Bible says, I am the way, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. It's as simple as that. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I say to people, Barry, truth has a face. 
truth is not a creed. It's not a philosophy. It is not a statement. It is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And when I understand that, I find the other deeper truths embedded in him because he answers my original questions, the, original, the question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. It's all about Jesus. Gregor, would you like to pray for our listeners? I know there'll be people out there who will have listened to your story who perhaps are searching themselves for truth. They're undertaking a journey where they're trying to find the truth for themselves. Would you pray for our listeners, but perhaps with a special reference to those people? Sure, love to. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being our God and Saviour. Thank you for the marvellous way that you have orchestrated my steps. And I want to give you all praise, honour and glory. Lord Jesus, I'm also thinking of those that are listening out there that are on a journey of discovery. And maybe they are finding it in the wrong place or they're trying and trying and they seem not to find the truth that their souls are yearning for. I pray right now in the name of Jesus through your spirit that you will move across the airwaves, that you will touch and speak to them and bring them to the fountain of truth where you would give them meaning to their lives and purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Gregor, it's been wonderful talking with you today, and I look forward to that thesis when it eventuates, <laughs> and I want a copy. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. It was a pleasure being here. And I wish you, I wish you well for your studies. PhD programs are rigorous programs, and uh, I know that you'll be pretty busy over the next several years. Yes. And um, I'm just sure that it'll be a wonderful outcome for you. And uh, also for those who... Um, will read your material or be influenced by you in the future. So all the best for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.